The following message is brought to you by Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We exist to bring glory to God by knowing Christ and making Him known. If you would like to visit our church, we hold multiple services on Sunday mornings starting at 9 a.m. We are located between Motokare Wharf and Edai Town. Pickups are available 709-1000. ...of people over the centuries and millennia who have come to find that He is holy and He is good and He is gracious. And we will stand and sing, for He has been gracious to us who were rebellious, and yet He has allowed us to come into His presence. And then for the eons, we will sing His praises. I hope that you get to enjoy that now, for this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Let's have uh, some time together in our scripture reading this morning. If you have your Bibles, look at Romans chapter 1. I'll take our scripture reading this morning from verses 1 to verse 17. And our sermon for today will be taken from verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1. Our scripture reading will come from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Verse 1. Paul servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name among whom are ye the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Verse 14, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. This is the reading of God's word. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in the book of Romans together this morning. Romans chapter 1, we'll be focusing on verses 16 and 17. Uh, by way of reminder, the Apostle Paul has written this epistle. It's been called the greatest letter ever written. And this epistle has been written to the church at Rome. It's a church that he has never been to, and yet he has every desire to be there. He wants to go 
see them, be a blessing to them, and then he says in chapter 15 that he wants to be helped along his way to Spain by them. And so here he's writing to the church in Rome, and he says in verse number 15, we left off with this last week, he says that he wants to come to them and preach the gospel to them. Which then brings us into our passage for today. Our passage for today will be verses 16 and verse 17. I do believe that it's in verse 16 and 17 that he outlines his thesis for the entire epistle. Talk pitching by me, talk or say, let me give him head talk the whole book. So everything else that flows out of the book of Romans comes from verses 16 and 17. And I want you to see it. I'll outline it quickly so you can see the outline of where we're going. And then we'll walk through our sermon together. So look at verse 16 and 17. Again, this is his head talk. This is his thesis for the entire book. So let's see verse number 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and then he's going to give us two things, and we'll walk through them today. He gives us two reasons that he is not ashamed. You can see them very clearly in these verses. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Here we go, first reason. For, in other words, this is the reason that I'm not ashamed. For, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. If you are a believer today, you are saved by God's power in the gospel. That's one. Two, verse 17. There's the second reason. Four. This is the reason. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Second one, verse 17. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the just shall live by faith. And so we'll walk through those today, but before we can get into it, let me pause and just answer a simple question. What is the gospel? For we're going to say in this passage, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And so this is important for us to understand what is the gospel. So in order to answer the question, what is the gospel, the word gospel literally means good news. And in order for us to have good news, you've got to understand what the bad news is. And the bad news traces all the way back to the garden at the very beginning. You might remember God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden. Everything was perfect. God communed with man and they talked face to face as it were. God walked with Adam in the garden. Everything was perfect. Adam lived in innocence. God gave Adam only one command. He said, you can look after the garden, eat of all the fruit you want to, but there is one tree, and that one tree alone, do not eat of the fruit of it. That was the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And he said, do not eat of that one tree. The rest of it, you can have it. And if you know the story, you know what happened Next, if you don't know the story, I might encourage you to take 30 minutes this afternoon and just read Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 3. It'll take you less than 30 minutes to read through that if you're an average reader. And you will have your eyes open to that story. And in that moment, Adam and Eve are there. The serpent came. Satan in the serpent came and tricked Eve. Eve did not know what she was doing. The rest of the scriptures unfold that. 
Eve ate of the fruit, turned, and gave the fruit to Adam. Scriptures also tell us Adam knew what he was doing. Adam ate of the fruit, and Adam did one thing, one word that's very important for the rest of us, for mankind, for the rest of history, and that word is sin. He sinned against God. And for many people, many people might say, but hang on, all he did was take a bite out of a piece of fruit. I want you to stop for just one moment and understand God only gave one law. There was no other laws about killing people and worshiping false idols. There was no other law about what day of the week to worship on. There was no other law about what to eat and what not to eat. There was only one rule. Don't eat that fruit. And in the moment that Adam, the creation, rebelled against the almighty sovereign creator of the world, he rebelled and he fell in sin. Romans chapter 5, later Paul will bring this out for the rest of us. And so death passed upon all men because of one man's sin. For by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin so that death passed upon all men. And now for generations after generations, all men are sinners. And I'm going to tell you this very kindly. Some of us might be sinners on the degree like Adam's son was, Cain, who killed his own brother. That's sin. But some of us might be on the other extreme, Adam, where all you did was eat of a piece of fruit. Or perhaps you might say, I only told a little lie. I've never done a great big sin. It doesn't matter whether it's a big sin or it's a little sin. You're still a sinner in the eyes of God. He does not sit up in heaven and say, okay, well maybe perhaps you did only little sins, so I'll give you a free pass. No, a single sin brought condemnation upon all mankind. You see, that's the bad news. That's how serious God takes sin and He kicked Adam out of the garden, placed a curse upon him and his family, and that curse has fallen upon all men. Namely, you are born in sin, and because of sin, you will die. And yet God, in all of His love and His mercy and grace, did not leave us in that state. Perhaps you know this memory verse, perhaps the most famous memory verse of all of them, John 3, verse 16, gives us an overview of the gospel. And God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You see, here's God Almighty who had every right to say, fine, man rebelled against me, I'm done, squash, done, it's over, we'll start all over again. And yet He did not do that. Instead, in His grace and in His mercy... God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Yes, Jesus, His Son. God became flesh. And Jesus gave His life. And you might remember the rest of the verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the Gospel. You see, Jesus went to the cross. The punishment that should be upon our sin, instead Jesus took it. Jesus went to the cross. We say, Jesus went to the cross to take our sins. Please don't let that go in one ear and out the other because that phrase, He took our sin, changes everything for us. In the garden, Adam needed somebody to take his sin. 
And you and I today, we need somebody to take our sin. And Jesus went to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might, become, we might receive the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, Jesus went to the cross and He became our sin. And all of the wrath of God that should have been poured out on me and on you, instead He poured it out on Jesus. And then He took Jesus' righteousness, all of His goodness, and placed it upon us. Oh, this is the gospel. Friend, Jesus took all of God's wrath and you and I get to receive His goodness. This is the gospel. And Paul says, it's this gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. He writes in verse number 16, you can see it again, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He is experienced at carrying the gospel. By the time he writes this book, Romans chapter 1, by the time he writes this book, he has already completed two missionary journeys. One in which he went to Galatia and started all of those churches. The Another one, he went into Greece and started all of those churches. And now he's on his third missionary journey as he writes. He's in Corinth now, having already started the church, going back around and trying to encourage the church. And now he's on his third. He knows how to carry the gospel. He also knows that it's costly to carry the gospel. I wonder how often we look at the cost of carrying the gospel and we think, oh, this might just be too costly. I'll do something else. Paul says, no, wait a second. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God. And I might just remind you of some of the things that it cost him as he carried the gospel. He knew that the gospel is the only thing that transforms lives. He knew it. And he carried the gospel anyway. And as he carried the gospel from one place to the next, it cost him. It cost him at the very beginning when he was in Damascus. He had just gotten saved. He had just started telling people about Christ. And immediately they wanted his life. And they've got to his friends, his new believer friends that maybe for only a few days have known him. They're letting him over the side of the wall in Damascus in the middle of the night in a basket. And they had every right to just let go of him because he had killed their friends. And now here, they're letting him out. His life is in their hands. And then in his missionary journeys, he goes to the churches in Galatia, and specifically in Lystra, they stoned him. And when he preached in Athens, they laughed at him. He went to Ephesus. We don't know a lot of the details here, but all we do know is that he wrote that he was face-to-face with a lion for the sake of the gospel. All of the different things. He was bitten by a snake. He was held in prison for years. He was shipwrecked multiple times, beaten multiple times. In Philippi, he was thrown in prison. You see, it's costly. And by the way, all of those things had happened by the time he writes this book. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You know why? Because it is the only thing that will transform lives. The gospel is the only thing that will transform lives. As I look back through our own, our own news cycle for the last week, I think of all of the different things that are going wrong in our nation right now. A hundred reported, one hundred rascals fighting face-to-face against the police and burning down police barracks in Alatau. Two Mile Hill, must I say any more? We have an all-out open tribal war going on in our nation's capital. Can I say the gospel is the only thing that will transform lives? You see, sin is rife among men. This week, reported, this week, two women in our nation's capital accused of being witches and set on fire. 
Guys, can we please stand up and say, if anything's going to change somebody's heart, it's going to have to be the gospel. I drive by at the old wharf and I watch because it's not just people who are at the bottom end economically who are struggling. Sin is rife from the bottom all the way through to the top. And I drive past the old wharf and I look into what used to be the parking lot for all of the APEC vehicles. And now I see one by one they are disappearing. And who knows where a whole warehouse full of Maseratis went. And guys, I'm telling you, it's sin from the bottom all the way to the top. And there's only one thing that will transform the life of men and women, it is the gospel. That's the only thing that will transform. You cannot say that education will transform because you can take anybody and put them through the best education and their life will still be the best, uh, still continue to be the same way. Friend, I want you to understand, if you educate somebody and their heart hasn't been changed, all they'll do is figure out better ways to steal from other people. Education doesn't change people. Better employment doesn't change people. Putting water in settlements doesn't change people. Opening hospitals doesn't change people. Employing youths doesn't change people. The gospel transforms lives. You see, if you understand what the gospel's doing in your life, it will transform your life. It will also change the way that you react to other people when they do you wrong. Some people would say things like, but no, wait, wouldn't enough money change my life? Just recently I saw a friend of mine had a coffee cup, and on the coffee cup, I laughed when I saw it at first, but then I began to think about it. Written on his coffee cup was written the phrase, a billion dollars would change all my problems. And on the surface I thought, isn't that the truth? But then later I began to think about it. Do you realize that money only compounds the problems? You see, the gospel is the only thing that changes your life, transforms your life, changes you from who you used to be, a lost sinner on the way to hell, only caring about yourself, to now caring about what God wants in your life, and you will overflow caring about what other people... You see, what happens when somebody gets a lot of money is they become a Scrooge and a jerk. They can't trust any of the people that are around them because they think that anybody that's around them is only there to get something from them. And you ask a billionaire when he's laying on his deathbed if he would rather have the billions of dollars in Kina that he has in his bank account or would he rather go ahead and get rid of that and at least have a good relationship with his family. You see, money doesn't transform lives. Some people might say, well, love, if we could just have love, love will overcome everything. No, it doesn't. The gospel transforms lives. You say, but but love is the gospel. No, it's not. Love is an element of the gospel, but you cannot strip the gospel away from love. You cannot just say, oh, well, we'll just love people. Listen, here, I'll give you an example of how this works. You say, well, I'll just love somebody and it'll change their life. And you watch this. You can love someone and they push back against it. And you say, well, that's okay, I'll keep loving them. And you love them some more and they keep pushing back. And then you love them some more and they keep pushing back. And you love them some more and then maybe there's just this little glimpse where they start to show a little bit of kindness back to you and you think, I'm breaking through. And you just keep loving them and eventually you love them and they turn it away again. You know what that leads to? Resentment. Anger. You see, love doesn't transform lives. The gospel transforms lives. 
That's God with His grace sending Jesus to take my place on the cross. That changes everything for me. And then as I live my life out as a believer, having put my trust in Jesus, as I live my life out now, all of a sudden, my life is being transformed, and we're going to see this in verse 17, from faith to faith. For it is written, the just shall live by faith hope that you understand that the gospel is the only thing that will transform your life. And it is the hope for all of the nations, unless you think I might just only be disparaging about our own, I will make mention of the rest of global news. It does not take much to look around in the country that I'm, I was born in right now. For sport, people are shooting police officers. Just read the, local, the global news. Sin is rife around the world. Come to verse number 16. We're going to see why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He knows transforms lives. So let's see it. Verse number 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Number one. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the very first reason he's not ashamed of the gospel, the very first reason, for, it's very clearly outlined, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. I see three key phrases within that. It's very easy to break them down. It is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. The second key phrase, unto salvation. And the third key phrase, to everyone that believeth. Very easy to break those down. So let's walk through them. The gospel is the power of God. Of God. So if we were to take the power of God and reduce it down to a thing, as it were, we would say that thing is the gospel. God displays, do you ever think about that? God displays His power among mankind through the gospel. The very transforming thing that will change your life is the power of God coming through the gospel into your life. Now as I look through the scriptures and I Look for this phrase, the power of God. I see it represented throughout the scriptures many times. In the book of Exodus, the power of God is described as great. And in the book of Deuteronomy, His power is described as mighty. In the book of Jeremiah, four different times it says that God created the world by His power and through His outstretched arm. In the book of Nahum, it says that He is slow to anger and yet He is great in power. When we look at his creating power in the book of Genesis, I see him with just the words, let there be light. He scattered the very element, the very thing by which you and I navigate life. Take light away and everything changes for you and I. And yet, in creating light, he separated light from darkness so that you and I can sleep at night. And then when he created the seas, just the next few days, he created the seas, and you and I know the massive expanse of the seas, and yet when he, ex- he created the seas, he created boundaries for them, so that you and I don't wake up one morning and one half of the world is swallowed up by the sea. You see, he created and then he also 
gave boundaries to it, harnessed it. And then I look at the way he sets up kings. It says that he turns the hearts of kings. The scripture says he turns the hearts of kings within his hand, whithersoever he wills. And he sets up some like Pharaoh and some like Sennacherib and some like, uh, some like Nebuchadnezzar. And he sets them up for the very sole purpose of him showing his own power as he knocks them back down. It's his own delight as he shows off his power. And then one day, God displayed His power by coming, becoming human. Deity became humanity. The Creator became creation, and He did it through a virgin birth. Oh, try that one, humankind. You'll never, ever be able to create a baby from a virgin birth. It's impossible. And yet, God became man. He was born as a baby... And then he displayed his power, God displayed his power for the next 33 years as Jesus walked on the earth and he walked on the water and he calmed the storm, stormy seas with a single word, peace. And they laid down as if he had told his dog to be quiet and lay down in the corner. At the pool of Siloam, he met a man who'd been lame for 38 years. And with just a few words, he told him to rise take up his bed and walk away. And he met the widow on the way out of Nain, and with a single word he said to the lady who, lady's son, the one who lay dead upon that stretcher, he said, young man, arise. And with a single word he raised that one from the dead. And to Jairus' daughter he said, Talitha Kumi, young maid, arise. And she came forth. And then he said to Lazarus, who was in the tomb, in John 11, he came to the tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. You see, he put on display his power time and time again. And then he did the very hardest thing for man ever to do. He laid down his life as a ransom for many. You and I can never lay down our life for anybody else, only for ourselves. And he laid down his life for every one of us and outstretched his arms and the sinless hands were pierced and his sin side was pierced and he gave his life for you and I and then in a great display of power that only can be done by God he took his life back up and then after raising Matthew 28 Jesus makes this statement he says all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth Go ye therefore and teach all nations. So you and I have been sent forth with the command to carry the very power of God that is reduced into the gospel. You see, the gospel of God is the power of God. We're commanded to take it out. Before I move on to the second part, from the power of God to salvation, I just want to point out one little thing that might be easy to overlook, but I think it's so very important. That word there, in verse number 16, it is the power of God. Now, you and I don't see it in English. The Greek word that Paul wrote, the Greek word is dunamis. That would be the same word that you and I now, we would translate that into dynamite. Now, this is pretty big deal, right? So what kind of power we're thinking in our mind, my goodness, don't play with dynamite, right? We tell our kids that. That's powerful stuff. And yet, God's power and man's power are very different. Let me show you why. Because with man's power, man's power always leads to destruction. Have you ever seen somebody use dynamite to build a building? They use the dynamite to blow up stuff, break stuff, knock doors down, 
blow up a mountainside. You don't use dynamite as a human being. You don't use it to create. You use it to destroy. And you think of all of the power that man has. You ever hear the phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? That's because it's in the hands of human beings. Men with power will become dictators and then they will rule over people in a way that makes them better and destroys the lives of others. When we talk about a power powerful nation, we think in terms of they have a mighty military. Don't bother them because they will squash you. So man using his power is destructive. And God using his power is transformative. And so God in his power, let there be light and he creates light. And the, all of the nations of the earth rise against him in the last day. And yes, he squashes them, but not for the sake of setting himself up to be a dictator, but so that he can rule and reign forever in peace. You see, our God is transformative in his power and he reaches into the heart of man, which is a heart of stone, and changes it into a heart of flesh so that we can be made right with him. His power is not destructive. Oh, his power is wonderful. So much so that whosoever believeth on him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. Second phrase, unto salvation. Unto salvation. The power of God unto salvation. So this is the gospel. He's describing it, and he tells us why he loves it, and why he's not ashamed of it. Because it's the power of God unto salvation. Now the word salvation, sometimes we just use Bible words, and we don't really know what they mean. Like we might say, hey, that guy got saved, but what is, got saved from what? The word salvation is speaking directly to deliverance from a tragedy. Deliverance. In other words, I was headed one way, and in going this way, I was going to be destroyed. It was going to be tragic. Things are going to go wrong. And yet, I've been saved and brought back to something better. You might have heard a phrase like this. You and I who live along the sea would have perhaps have heard phrases like this. He was saved from drowning. You've heard that kind of phrase. And so here's the same idea. I was headed one direction and God came along with His power in the gospel and He saved me. I have been saved from, from what? From the power of Satan, from the wrath of God. I've been saved from sin's snare and from spiritual ignorance and from false religion and from an eternity in hell. He saved me. He delivered me from that kind of tragedy. It's the power of God unto salvation. And you might remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So that brings me into the third one here, to everyone that believeth. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And here we see in Ephesians 2 that it is by grace that you're saved through faith. Now, please don't be mistaken. Don't think Jesus went to the cross, took the sin of the world, therefore, de facto, all of us are saved. It's not how it works. He doesn't go, well, Jesus paid for everybody's sin, so then everybody's in. That's not how it works. It's the power of God to salvation to, not everybody, 
to everyone that believeth. You and I receive salvation by faith. We believe in Him. Again, I used this phrase two weeks ago. I hope that you'll hold on to it. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So it is by grace, through faith, in Christ. It's not faith in my faith. How many times do you hear that? You hear somebody say, well, I've got my faith. Like it's a business card they're going to put in their wallet and carry it around. No, you don't have faith in your faith. That's stupid. Your faith is not in you. Your faith is in Jesus. He's the one that took your punishment at the cross. So you put your faith in Jesus. And you come before God. What is it that makes you righteous? It's not you. Well, it's not, well, God, I got my faith. I'm holding on to my faith. No, I'm holding on to Jesus. That's faith. I'm holding on to Jesus. And it's because of your grace. I don't deserve that. You're the king that needs nothing. I bring nothing to you. You just gave me Jesus. So I'll take Jesus and I'm going to hang on to Jesus. That's faith. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth. Now let me talk to you real quickly about the believing and then we'll move on to verse 17. You might say, well, pastor, what is it that I need to believe? I see three aspects here. I don't have them on the board. Maybe if you want to write them down, you're welcome to. Three aspects to faith that I think are very important. It's a mentally, emotionally, and willingly. Mentally, emotionally, and willingly. In other words, your whole body, soul, and spirit. You're in this completely. I believe Him. I'm not holding back a part of me. It's not... I'm. I, I don't diversify my faith with God. If you, know, if you understand investment, I'm not, I'm not diversifying my faith. I'm not going to hedge my bets. I'm all in with Jesus. So mentally, mentally, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that He went to the grave, and He was there for three days, and He was raised up. By the way, Romans 10, 9 and 10 is very clear. Thou shalt believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and if... Thou shalt believe that God has raised him from the dead. This is very important that yes, mentally, I believe, yes, there was a time when Jesus, 2,000 years ago, died on the cross, took my sin, went to the grave, three days, after three days, he was raised from the dead. I believe that mentally. Emotionally. Emotionally. I believe, emotionally, I believe that I am a sinner and my sin has separated me from God. I'm sorrowful for my sin. I'm mourning for my sin. And I'm looking to Him to be the one that provides the grace and mercy to allow me to come in. That's emotionally. That's where I'm at my heart. And then willingly, willingly, I'm trusting that Jesus is the only one. I don't get to, again, I cannot diversify this, guys. I cannot say, well, I'll trust Jesus and I'll attend on Sunday or Saturday and I'll take Holy Communion and I'll get baptized, and I'll be a good boy. You don't diversify with God. It's all in or nothing in. I'm with Him completely, and so I trust Jesus alone. By God's grace alone, I'm saved through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so I might encourage you, trust Him mentally, emotionally, and willingly. Now, as we come to the end of verse 16, before we go into verse 17, there's a little phrase here that there's a bit of confusion 
especially today within our culture, I think I'll address it. I'm just going to touch it, and then we'll move on to verse 17. Let me just, just touch it, okay? So verse 16, it says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And then he put this little phrase in here, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, by the way, I mentioned that this is his head talk. This is his thesis for the whole book. We're going to see over and over that God does not place the Jew above the Gentile. He makes that statement many times. Uh, there is none righteous, he says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And he says there is no benefit of being a Jew or being a Gentile. He says that many times, especially in Romans chapter 3. Within the context of Romans chapter 3, verse number 23, you might remember this verse. Romans 3.23 makes the statement, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He didn't just say all as in you and all of your friends. He said all. The context of chapter 3 is Jew versus Gentile. So all, Jews and Gentiles, are all lost before God because of their sin. So then why would he make this statement to the Jew first and also to the Greek? And here's what I mean by there's a current culture within us right now, there's a current culture that says that if you're going to carry the gospel, you need to carry it to Jewish people first and then you can carry it to Gentiles. That's a complete misunderstanding of what the scriptures say. The scripture does not say if you're going to carry the gospel, go find a Jew and then tell him about Jesus so you can go tell everybody else. That's not what it says. This is... I'll use two words. Maybe you can log these away. Prescriptive versus descriptive. This is descriptive. In other words, he's describing what happened. It's not prescriptive as in, let me tell you how to do it. He's saying, the gospel came and it went to the Jews first. And after it went to the Jews, it went to the Gentiles. And we all know that. Acts chapter 2, the gospel was proclaimed clearly in Jerusalem. And after that, by Acts chapter 8, it's going out to the Gentiles. This is very clear. And Paul says, the gospel came, it went to the Jews first, and after that it went to the Gentiles. So please, brothers and sisters, don't let us get tripped up and think that what was descriptive is actually supposed to be prescriptive. He's not saying you need to go to the Jews first. He's saying that's what happened. Jewish people today, yes, are lost in their sin, just like you and I are lost in our sin. And Paul goes to a long avenue to make clear that now there's no difference between the two. All are lost before God and all need Jesus Christ. Let's come into verse 17. You'll see the second reason. First, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God because, number one, it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth. And number two, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. When a man or a woman places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are saved, they're delivered from God's wrath and from sin's hold, and God places upon them the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Another word for that is justification. God justified you. In other words, he declared you to be righteous by placing Jesus' goodness upon you. His righteousness came upon you. This is a blessing. 
For in the moment that Jesus took your sin, he gave you his righteousness. The moment that you became saved, you put your trust in Jesus, and he gives you his righteousness. For it's in the gospel that God's righteousness is revealed to us. We're justified. So if you're here today as a believer, you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been transformed by the gospel And now you are justified. In God's eyes, as He sees you, He does not see you as a sinner upon whom His wrath abides. Instead, He sees the righteousness of Jesus upon you. That one's as righteous as my son. You see, God demanded a righteousness. Think back to the garden. Adam, He demanded a righteousness, and Adam fell short. So you know what God did? He provided a righteousness. God said, you better have righteousness in order for me to commune with you. And then God knew you can never provide it on your own, so God gave it to us himself. And that righteousness is revealed in verse 17. It says, from faith to faith. And that seems a little bit confusing. It's an odd way to say it, but here let me just break it down for us. In the moment that many of us put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the very first time, Our eyes were open to the gospel. And guys, even I'm praying that even today, among us, we would be having some who have never had their trust in Jesus before. Perhaps they've tried to diversify their trust. Perhaps you've never put your trust in Christ. And I'm praying that right now, God's just opening your eyes to the gospel so that you'll trust Him. And so then as I see this, you and I would remember, those of us that have already done it, we put our trust in Jesus and it's as it were just faith the size of a mustard seed. Remember what Jesus said? That's all it takes. Just a little bit. And I've got that little bit of faith. And then as I grow in my spiritual growth, I move from faith to faith. And I continue to move from faith to faith. And from faith to faith. And you see, guys, as we go along, we're growing in our spiritual maturity. Another word for that, by the way, is your sanctification. You're changing as you go from faith to faith and from faith to faith. And you will always be growing in your faith for the rest of your life. You'll never reach perfection. That day happens when you get your glorified body. That's called glorification. So justification is the moment that Jesus saves you. Sanctification is you grow in faith to faith. Glorification is I've got no more sin and I'm perfect before God. Now perfect doesn't happen until I'm with Him. But all along the way, Therein is the righteousness of God revealed in you. Again, I'm going to say it. We said it three weeks in a row now. The gospel is not just for salvation. It's very much for sanctification. And therein is the righteousness of God being revealed in your life as you begin from one step to the next step. Begin to see victory in your life over this sin and then victory over that sin and then victory over this sin and then victory over that sin. And my sanctification happens from faith to faith. And then he makes this little statement at the end of verse 17. As it is written, he says, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
What an amazing statement. And it harkens all the way back to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4. And that little verse gets repeated again and again and again. Paul repeats it all throughout his epistles. We've seen it already in the, when we went through the book of Galatians. And here he is right out of the gate. He says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And therein, in the gospel, will you see the righteousness of God revealed in your life. And it will happen from faith to faith because the just shall live by faith. Now here's what I want you to grasp because for so long I think Christianity has said that phrase. The just shall live by faith. I think Christianity has said that for so long that Christianity itself has forgotten what it really means. I think that if you've been in church for a number of years you've probably heard the statement I'm going to live by faith and it's come to mean something that it doesn't really mean in the scriptures. I'm afraid that what we've come to grab, the just shall live by faith, I think what we've come to grab is that if I just trust God, He'll put bread on my table tomorrow. That's what we think it means. And so I'm going to live by faith and God will put food on my table. And I'm going to live by faith and all the bad things are going to go away. That's never what He ever promised in the Scriptures. For look at the one guy that we've been talking about, Paul. Dude's been doing everything right and everything wrong keeps happening to him. So stop thinking that living by faith means that if I just trust Jesus enough, everything's going to go perfect. I'll have green lights and empty parking spaces. No, no, no. Here's the statement. The just shall live by faith. The opposite of living by faith is dying by works. In other words, I've got to figure this thing out. I've got to work this thing out. I've got to be a good boy. I've got to do everything right, and then God will be pleased with me. And all that does is it leads to a legalistic dog that chases his own tail. And around and around and around I go as I'm trying to do everything right, and I can't. And he says, stop. Trust me. My gospel is going to reveal the righteousness of God in your life. Stop. I'll transform your life with this gospel and you'll learn how to really live by faith in Jesus. I'm going to trust Him, yes, for my salvation, but I'm going to trust Him for my day-to-day walk so that when sin comes before me, I'll be able to push back against it. I won't be working. Instead, I'm going to be trusting. The just shall live by faith. He gave another statement in the book of Galatians. You might remember this one, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. It's no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So now I'm living, walking through my life, putting my trust in Jesus, and He's the one doing the living through me. You see, the gospel transforms my life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth. And therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The gospel transforms life. As I close, I wonder if perhaps, uh, if you're a believer here today, I wonder if perhaps you've gotten to a point in your Christian life where you just think that you've just been beat down by sin. Can I remind you that sin will do everything it can to make you ashamed of the gospel. Just think about it. If you've spent days or weeks 
giving yourself over to sin and allowing sin to rule your life, you will shut your mouth about the gospel. You realize that? And I'll tell you why. It's because you don't really believe that it's the righteousness of God being revealed in you. I'll illustrate that. Let's say if perhaps somehow you were an amazing medical genius. And somehow you came up with the cure for cancer. And there you've got it. It's top secret. And by the way, if you came up with a cure for cancer, you would be the world's most famous person. Let's say you had the cure for cancer. You had it all written down in a notebook, and yet you had cancer. And there you lay on your deathbed with the cure for cancer. And you hadn't told anybody about it. I think in your dying moments, you'd be terribly ashamed to tell anybody that you had a cure for cancer. Because it's the very thing that's destroying you. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because I've seen the gospel of Christ change my life. Therefore, I'm going to speak out about it. So let me tell you, the opposite of sin making you ashamed of the gospel is the gospel removing the shame of sin. Oh, it is the power of God unto salvation. And perhaps you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Could I invite you to do that this morning? Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, this morning as we've seen the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of God on display for salvation to every one of us who believes. Lord, I pray that we would take these next few moments and think about, have I placed my trust in Jesus or not? So with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody's looking around. I ask you to inspect your own heart. Examine yourself. Have you placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know for sure that you're his child? Are you saved from God's wrath? Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I've not put my trust in Christ, but I'd like to, and I'd like to talk to somebody this morning. Could somebody show me how to put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you raise your hand? If you'll just raise your hand, I'll have somebody come to you. Go off to the side. You guys can have a chat. Talk about how to put your trust in Christ. Is there anybody like that? In the overflow as well, we have uh, pastoral staff that's there to help. If you're in the overflow, you want to raise your hand. Just encourage our pastoral staff to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit there. You're here this morning. You say, Pastor, I've never put my trust in Christ, but I'd like to. I want to be saved from God's wrath. I want to be saved from Satan's hold, sin, snare, eternity in hell. I want to be saved from that. Just raise your hand. Anybody like that? Just keep your hand. That's good. Just keep your hand up. I'll send somebody to you. Is there another like that? You say, Pastor, I'd like to put my trust in Christ. I know I need Jesus. And guys, it doesn't matter. You're Adam's son, Cain, and you murdered somebody, or you're Adam himself, and all you did was eat a piece of a fruit. Sin is sin, and it separates us from God. Is there another? Oh, Jesus took our payment on the cross. And then if I might come into the second point, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Can I ask us this morning, who among us might say, Pastor, I'm going to raise my hand. I'm not going to be going out and talk to somebody, but I'm going to raise my hand and I'm going to admit, I need to trust the gospel more 
Because the gospel can transform my life. Pastor, would you pray for me? You're here this morning to say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I want to trust the gospel to transform my life. Would you raise your hand? There's hands all over the room. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I'm going to be praying God do a work in their lives. So, Father, thank you for the grace that comes from Calvary. Thank you for the gospel that can transform our lives. I pray now this morning, Lord, that you would use the gospel. Help us to understand, grasp the transforming power of the gospel. We can live. We can really, honestly live. Not chasing our tails and fighting against sin and against the devil, but instead I can really live trusting Jesus. So Lord, I pray that the gospel would do its work in transforming our lives from faith to faith. May your name be glorified in our lives. Which in your beautiful name we ask it. Amen. Thank you, Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Matt Allen of Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We would love to have you join us for service if you are in the area. If you need help with transportation, please give us a call on 709-1000. Again, it's 709-1000.